Tonight, a prescription for change, a new way of paying family doctors to meet high demand. British Columbia's revised payroll plan. So we can manage the rising costs of running a practice. The effort to ease a chronic staffing crunch. It is a model unique in Canada. U.S. federal charges against the Canadian suspect in the hammer attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Zip ties, rope, and a roll of tape. Disturbing allegations of a hostage-taking plot. Plus, that sinking financial feeling. There's a lot of concern all around. From spending to investing, a new gut check on the erosion of Canadian consumer confidence. They are worse off now than they ever have been. CTV National News with Omar Sachedina. Good evening, everyone. More than 6 million people in this country do not have a family doctor, and a million of those patients are in British Columbia, where today the province offered physicians a significant raise in order to retain them and recruit more. A new compensation model even doctors are describing as a seismic shift. Here's CTV's BC Bureau Chief Melanie Nagy on the financial shot in the arm. One in five British Columbians are without a family doctor, but now the B.C. government says it has a solution to the shortage. Commitment to public health care, commitment to our patients, that's what today's agreement's all about. The New Deal is rooted in a new funding model, one that comes with a substantial raise for physicians. This payment model will help protect and strengthen B.C.'s health care system by helping to attract new family doctors and retain existing doctors. Full-time doctors can soon opt out of the current fee-for-service system and sign up for the new program that could bump their salaries to about 385000 which is up from 250000 It is by far the best agreement negotiated for physicians in Canada this year. Rather than simply being paid per patient, physicians will be compensated for total hours worked and overhead costs, which can average over 80000 a year. It is a model unique in Canada, bringing together the best of a range of payment models. Many doctors in B.C. and across the country are struggling. Pandemic burnout, staffing shortages and escalating costs have forced family practices to close. This is why we've had such a drain out of the community and that there are, you know, even if people really want to practice in family medicine up till now, they haven't been able to afford to. Sharon LeClaire lives in a small Vancouver Island town. She recently lost her doctor of 25 years. It sucks. She's a highly skilled uh, doctor. While LeClaire welcomes any effort to support physicians, she's still worried it won't be enough to attract a new doctor to her community. Where do we go from here? I don't know. I've been trying to wrap my head around it. BC doctors played an active role in developing the new model, which officially starts in February. The total cost of the program is $708 million over three years. Omar? Melanie Nagy in Vancouver tonight. Mel, thank you. A high-stakes standoff is shaping up in Ontario between education workers and the Ford government. Thousands of custodians, administrative assistants and early childhood educators are preparing to walk off the job on Friday in response to legislation that blocks them from striking. CTV's Heather Butts on the schoolyard showdown that's left parents and students caught in the middle. Usually a tool of last resort, the Ontario government has tabled back-to-work legislation. 
even before education support staff hit the picket lines. No responsible government would sit back and hope for the best. They, would, they should, and we are, taking action to ensure these kids remain in school. When passed, the bill would force a contract on 55,000 support staff and make it illegal to go on strike. The province also says it will use the notwithstanding clause to head off any constitutional challenges. It is a monstrous overreach. They have employed the nuclear option here. The two remain at odds over pay. The province is offering as much as 2.5% annually. The union wants nearly 12, roughly $3 an hour. With a surplus of $2 billion, the union feels the province has the money. Dressed up as Rosie the Riveter, this union rep says members will stage a province-wide political protest on Friday. There are consequences, and we have shared those with our members. I think there's also consequences for not fighting. The ordeal has parents split. Not happy one bit, sorry. I think it's ridiculous because what parents going to do? I really want my kids to be in a, in a safe, healthy learning environment. I think. Jessica Lyons, a mother of three elementary students, is standing with support staff. Ford and Lecce just seem so intent on cutting, cutting, cutting. And here's education workers who are standing up and saying, no, we need schools to be better. If support staff walk off the job on Friday, there are hefty fines for violating a prohibition on strikes. The Ontario legislature will be back in session at 5 a.m. tomorrow to try and push this bill through. Omar? In just a few short hours. All right, Heather, thank you. And education workers in Quebec called on the government to improve staffing shortages and working conditions. <laughs> Teachers and support staff rallied outside the National Assembly in Quebec City ahead of contract negotiations with the province. And the man leading the province of Saskatchewan reversed course today, apologizing for an invitation one of his MLAs sent to convicted killer Colin Thatcher. Last week, uh, there was an individual that attended the speech from the throne who should not have been invited to do so. As Premier and as leader of the government caucus, ultimately I am responsible. And to all of the people of Saskatchewan, I offer my unequivocal apology. apology. It comes just days after Scott Moe implied the government did nothing wrong. What would I apologize for? Lyle Stewart, the MLA who invited Thatcher, was stripped of his legislative duties. Thatcher was convicted of killing his ex-wife in 1983. Former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly faced another day of intense cross-examination at the Emergencies Act inquiry today, rebutting accusations made by his subordinates and launching a few of his own. CTV's Judy Trin explains. Peter Slowly was Ottawa's first black police chief, hired in 2019 to change the culture and fight systemic racism. Slowly testified that mandate made him a target. And it is singularly the number one reason for the resistance to me. In cross-examination, Slowly pushed back against a portrayal of him as a tyrant, a perception, he said, was based on rumours, but also perpetuated by acting deputy chief Trish Ferguson. In her handwritten notes, she wrote that slowly threatened to cut off the genitals of a fellow officer. And you don't recall saying that you'll cut off Dave Springer's nuts and use them as bookends. And use them as bookends? No, sir. I don't recall saying that. Ferguson also expressed concerns about the firm Navigator, hired to help with crisis communications. Navigator billed OPS more than $185,000. It did a reputation audit of social media to see how many people were calling for Slowly's resignation. 
Ferguson wrote that she believed that Navigator had begun to, quote, drive our operations and influence the chief's decision around things like enforcement. Her extreme editorial license that she took was extremely problematic for me and reflects on her, not on me. The man who was the top cop in Ottawa before Slowly says he's shocked by the dysfunction. He's making basically allegations uh, uh, around uh, notes that are being taken, around uh, not being accurate, not reflective of, of the situation. Many times uh, his comments are being uh, uh, misinterpreted uh, by uh, a lot of people. Peter Slowly resigned on February 15th one day after the Emergencies Act was passed. Tomorrow, the convoy organizers will get their day in court to testify about how they were treated by police. Omar. All right, Judy Trin in Ottawa tonight. Thanks. The FBI released new evidence today against the Canadian man accused of breaking into U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home in San Francisco and brutally assaulting her husband, Paul, sending him to hospital with a fractured skull. Late this evening, Pelosi shared this statement saying her husband has made steady progress in what will be a long recovery process. CTV's Washington correspondent Richard Madden with the new details. Federal authorities announcing several new charges against David DePap, the alleged intruder who violently attacked Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in a brutal home invasion. The charges that we are filing today include attempted murder, residential burglary, assault with a deadly weapon. New court filings detail incriminating statements by the 42-year-old suspect after his arrest on Friday, including his disturbing plans to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage, adding by breaking Nancy's kneecaps, she would then have to be wheeled into Congress, which would show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions. Well, this was based on his statements that this was politically motivated. Police say they found zip ties, tape, rope, and at least one hammer in the suspect's duffel bag, adding no security system was on when he smashed through the back door with a hammer, making his way to the second floor, yelling, where's Nancy? Locating Mr. Pelosi in his bed sleeping. He woke him up, confronting him about the whereabouts of Speaker Pelosi. Pelosi covertly called 911, giving clues he was in trouble. Officers arrived two minutes later. Nancy Pelosi has been visiting her husband in hospital where he's reportedly awake and now speaking to investigators. Police say the suspect, who once lived in British Columbia, has an online history promoting far-right conspiracies and violent extremism. Why are we in American democracy feeding these outlandish conspiracy theories? Why are they festering on social media? And in this final week before critical midterm elections, both parties are now urging to calm the rhetoric and lower the political temperature. The suspect, meantime, will make his first court appearance tomorrow. Omar. Richard Madden in Washington tonight. Police in India have arrested nine people in connection with the collapse of a 143-year-old suspension bridge in the western state of Gujarat yesterday. At least 134 people are dead and dozens injured. A terrifying moment before the collapse was captured on camera, showing the overcrowded bridge swaying as people clutched the green netting on either side. The bridge had reopened last week after undergoing repairs. And South Korea is also in mourning today. Thousands gathered at memorial sites to offer flowers, letters and prayers 
to mark the lives of at least 155 people killed during this weekend's crowd surge. 26 foreigners are among the dead. Over 140 people were also injured, including a Canadian. As the war in Ukraine hit the 250-day mark today, Russian missiles rained down on key targets across the country. The attack knocked out power to more than 300,000 homes in Kyiv alone. Here's CTV's Danielle Hamamjan. 8 a.m. in the Ukrainian capital. A fresh wave of Russian missile strikes pounded not only the city, but sites across the country. The target, once again, civilian infrastructure. Ukrainian officials said 18 sites in all were hit, causing electricity and water outages. I have a feeling the Russian, uh, uh, Russian aggressors uh, want to freezing people in this winter. They want to uh, make the people without uh, heating. The mayor of Kyiv said 80% of his city was left without running water. This is the least of what affects me, said this man. It's another thing when people are dying. That is the problem. In Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, power cuts meant no underground trains, no trolley buses. I'm fed up with the Russians, said this driver, but nobody will give up just like that. We got used to it and it's now been nine months. The Ukrainian military said it had shot down 44 of 50 Russian missiles. The strikes came two days after Russia accused Ukraine of a drone attack on its Black Sea fleet off the coast of the Crimean Peninsula. Russia also claimed Britain had trained the Ukrainian soldiers who it said had carried out those strikes. Omar. All right, Danielle, thank you. A weekend search for a missing one-month-old baby in a river near Laval, Quebec, has ended in tragedy. Police divers recovered the boy's body from the Milil River late this morning. He was traveling with his mother and four-year-old sister Friday afternoon when their vehicle plunged into the water. The mother remains in hospital, unable to speak to investigators. The young girl was treated and released. Lobster fishermen fighting for First Nation treaty rights are demanding a resolution from Ottawa. The dispute over when they can or can't fish has dragged on for more than two decades in Cape Breton. Livelihoods are being threatened, fueling fears of another fallout. Here's CTV's Kreese Najgate. Catching and selling lobster during the fall season is how some Mi'kmaq fishermen make a living. Uh, you know, sell to feed our kids and give our kids, you know, roof over their head. Craig Doucette says he is fishing under his inherent treaty right, with those rights upheld by a 1999 Supreme Court ruling. But in the Department of Fisheries and Oceans' eyes, what Doucette is doing is illegal because he is fishing out of season. But we just drove to it and it's not there, so I assume it was seized. Doucette says the department has been tracking his movements, seizing his traps and threatening to seize his boat. The DFO confirmed with CTV News it has seized in total 210 traps in the St. Peter's area in October. I have a 14-year-old and she sees all this and it's like, you know, is that a criminal? Two years ago, Doucette's First Nation of Boltledeck had an understanding with the fisheries department to only fish during the spring for a moderate livelihood. However, Doucette alleges commercial fishermen were vandalizing and cutting their traps. 
The DFO would not say if it was investigating. We tried your way. It didn't work. It did not work. So, you know, what else are we going to do? Boltlutek Chief Wilbert Marshall says the vandalism of traps cut into their spring revenue, leaving them no choice but to fish in the fall. He warns that the Prime Minister and the Fisheries Minister need to come to the negotiating table quickly. If you really mean true reconciliation, mean it. Do something about it. Listen to us. Listen to our people. In a statement, a DFO spokesperson said First Nations have a Supreme Court-affirmed treaty right to fish, and our government is working with them to implement that right. For Doucette and many other Indigenous fishermen, that wait for implementation has been more than 22 years. Until then, Doucette will continue to do what he believes is his right. The DFO also maintains that it has a critical role in conservation. However, Chief Marshall says that their own scientists and studies have found that their fishing doesn't have an impact on the lobster population. Omar. All right, Grayson, thank you. Coming up. It really is just one fire at a time, one day at a time. When consumer confidence hits a new low, plus high hopes for a billion-dollar jackpot. A new snapshot tonight shows many Canadians taking stock of their personal finances have the same bleak outlook. The daunting day-to-day -day expenses are piling up, lowering the morale to levels not felt before. CTV's Genevieve Beauchemin on the painful money pinch. As they crunch their budget numbers, Canadians say they're hurting, coping with falling home prices and the rising cost of just about everything else. There's a lot of concern all around, but I think uh, inflation is definitely... Uh, you know, is definitely there. A survey for Bloomberg News found 47% of respondents say their finances have worsened over the past year, a record high number of concerned Canadians since Nanos Research began the weekly check-in in 2008. The kicker is that Canadians survived the 2008 recession, they survived the pandemic and worry about their jobs. Now we're in a post-pandemic period and they're reporting that they are worse off now than they ever have been. And nearly two in three Canadians fear things will get worse over the next few months. A growing number are struggling to save up. Another survey found 20% of people are reducing portion sizes or skipping meals. I'm extremely, extremely worried what the, what the next few months are going to bring, especially over the winter. At Frisette, a popular neighborhood salad counter in Montreal, owner Stephanie Russell says the cost of ingredients is adding up. This month alone, our case of lettuce that in, in general, I would say on average, like a fair price, regardless of season, is about $35. It's gone up to 75 to 120. But for now, she's holding off on raising her prices, scaling back elsewhere instead. I've had um, many regular customers just say, OK, so I assume you're going to be raising your prices. And I'm like, no, not yet. That pessimism could lead to a sharp drop in spending and perhaps a recession. Just how bad it might get is a balancing act weighing on many Canadians now. Geneviève Beauchemin, CTV News, Montreal. And still ahead, a sudden shutdown. COVID dampens the mood inside the happiest place on Earth. Thousands of visitors inside Shanghai's Disney Resort were trapped after the theme park abruptly shut down because of a COVID outbreak. 
No one was allowed to leave without a negative test, which everyone got in the end because of an expedited testing process. The one consolation prize, people could still go on the rides as they awaited their results. And not the kind of entrance a thief in Oklahoma City wanted to make, especially when it was all caught on camera. The robber came crashing through the ceiling of a restaurant after gaining access through an air duct. He only got away with some electronics as the owner had bolted down the safe and beefed up security after a previous burglary. And all eyes of lottery players in the U.S. are on tonight's Powerball jackpot. $1.3 billion is up for grabs, and some stores are giving away thousands of free tickets to drum up excitement. If there's no winner tonight, the prize will increase to a staggering $1.6 billion. That's a lot of cash. After the break, some spooky scenes from Canadian streets. What's haunting Canada this Halloween? And before we say goodnight, we'd like to introduce you to some haunted hollows across the country and hear from the monsters, the ghouls, and the ghosts who stalked the streets, played tricks, and found treats. Would you like a trick or a treat? Trick! I don't think you want any of these treats. Centipede? No! no. <laughs> Do you want big chocolate bars or little chocolate bars? Yeah. What about Kit Kat? Yeah! yeah. I'm Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm Spider-Man. I'm a ninja. I also love to eat the yummy things. We always get to walk around and parents um, clap when we walk by. Love the costumes. That is a snapshot of this Monday. We leave you now with a look at some Halloween moments from our own CTV family. For all of us at CTV National News, enjoy the candy. Thank you for watching and see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.